We can observe in the very facts the bright evidence of truth which shines in them and the mighty change with, uh, which is taking place in the apostles. They become perfect men, extraordinary men. Not that the Holy Spirit has come up, now that the Holy Spirit has come upon them. All Christ's promises and predictions, he who believes in me will do these and even greater works. You will be dragged before tribunals and kings and beaten in the synagogues and will suffer grievous things. And yet you will overcome your persecutors and executioners and will bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. All this, how it came to pass, may be seen in this admirable book. Here you will see the apostles speeding their way over land and sea as if on wings. These Galileans, once so, so, so tomorrow and obtuse, we find suddenly changed into new men, despising wealth and honor, raised above passion and concupiscence. Okay? As I was reading um, last night through, uh, I read about 15 of the chapters of Acts of the Apostles last night, and just refreshing my memory in preparation for tonight. And it really is an amazing story, and we have to begin to be amazed by it. Stop reading it as we oftentimes, unfortunately, read the scriptures, right? Just getting through it. And start reading it as a novel, okay? As an adventure, because that's exactly what it is. So I encourage you as we go along to keep a chapter or two ahead as we cover a chapter two at a time. Keep a chapter or two ahead. Maybe even read 15 chapters as you lay in bed in the evening. Turn the television off. Okay? And let the story take you so you can't put down the, the book. That's how I felt last night. I just didn't want to put it down to go take a shower. And I uh, went up to bed. And, I was, and uh, anyways, my wife finally convinced me. So... Last time we talked about uh, this general introduction and the first, I'm going to go through six verses, unfortunately. Uh, that wasn't too good. But we talked about the kingdom, and this is what you need to understand tonight. <laughs> no, we will talk about this. I have to leave it on the board. My brother and I were working out the days to Pentecost and the months of the Jewish calendar new moons and stuff. Anyways, um, um, we talked about the kingdom of God and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the apostles asked an important question in chapter 1. Well, look at, look at verse 3. No, verse, yeah, verse 3. Acts of the apostles. during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. Notice, what is their conversation about? It is about the kingdom of God. And what's the very next verse say? What's the very next verse about? Yeah, okay, you're right. And then you keep going. For John, verse 5, John baptized, uh, baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What do those things have to do with each other? Baptism and the Holy Well, not baptism. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with the kingdom? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, that the Holy Spirit was given in the Old Testament as a gift to the kings as their anointing. As they became Messiah, or they became the Messiahs. There was more than one Messiah in the Bible. It wasn't just Jesus. The word Messiah means the anointed one. 
Every king in the Old Testament was one who had been anointed. And when they were anointed with oil, the Holy Spirit descended upon their heads, making them Christ's anointed ones, kings. And so here they spoke for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this is all in their minds. The restoration of the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God, the same thing. Don't think something floating up in the sky. For the Jews, the kingdom of God was their kingdom. It was the place where God ruled and he had a people who obeyed him. And now they're going to look for that restoration. And so you see, in response to verse 5, And John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So notice their question in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Do you see how it's tied right back to verse 5? They're looking for the restoration of the kingdom because he's promising the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, when, Lord? Verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power from the Holy, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Verse 7, then, is his answer. Don't worry about the time. It'll come. And when it comes, you'll know, because the Holy Spirit will descend upon you. And as we know, because we've read ahead, it's about to come in a few days. Okay? He's telling them, Set aside your concerns. Prepare yourself. For God will send the Holy Spirit in his own time when he is ready. Okay? And our Lord is taken up into the cloud. And what, what did I say about that last time? As a reference to the Old Testament. To what book? The book of Daniel where we see the Son of Man taken on the clouds to the right hand of God and enthroned. And so the, Jesus being taken up into the clouds for the Jews is a memory then of the prophecy of the book of Daniel. They see him, his ascension as an enthronement, enthroning him as king. St. John Chrysostom says, Why did a cloud take him out of the apostles' sight? The cloud was a sure sign that Jesus had already entered into heaven. It was not a whirlwind or a chariot of fire as in the case of the prophet Elijah. You remember the prophet Elijah was taken into heaven and a whirlwind went in front of him and a chariot came and took him, took him up. Or was it the other way around? Ah, the chariot went first and the whirlwind took him up. That's what it was. It was not a, whirl, a chariot of fire or a whirlwind as in the case of the prophet Elijah, but a cloud, which was a symbol of heaven itself. You remember in the Old Testament as God came down and dwelt among Israel in the desert in the tent... What filled the tent of meeting? The glory cloud. And when, when our Lord himself was on top of Mount Tabor for the transfiguration, what came down? Cloud. A cloud. And so again we see this divine cloud of God, evidence of the heavenly abode, coming down and our Lord ascending to the Father on that cloud. Okay? The Catechism of Pius V says, What we have already taught of the mystery of his death and resurrection, the faithful should deem not less true of his ascension. For although we owe our redemption and salvation to the passion of Christ, whose, mer who, whose merits opened heaven to the just, yet his ascension is not only proposed to us as a model. Pay attention. 
His ascension is not just proposed to us as a model. It's not just an example for us, which teaches us to look on high and ascend in, in spirit into heaven. But it, but it also imparts to us a divine virtue which enables us to accomplish what it teaches. Jesus Christ ascended to the Father, not because, I've said this to you before, not because the Word ever left the side of the Father as though God was without His Word. But when our Lord ascended to the right hand of the Father, He took our humanity and enthroned it on the throne of God. So now, a human being in the person, in the divine person of Jesus Christ, dwells in the presence of God, enthroned with the Father. And what the Catechism is saying is that our Lord does that because that is what God wants for us. Jesus is never just an example for us. He does for us and with us what we could never do on our own. When we are baptized, we're not baptized like Jesus. We're baptized into Christ's baptism. When our Lord ascends on high, he takes us and enthrones us at the right hand of the Father. St. Leo says, Today we are not only made possessors of paradise, but we have ascended with Christ mystically, but really, into the highest heaven. And through Christ we have obtained a more ineffable grace than that which we lost through the devil's envy. Hold on to this idea that Christ has taken us to the abode of the Father, has entered our human nature into the presence of the divine. This will be absolutely essential to the entire story of what is about to take place. As we watch the apostles transformed, as St. John Chrysostom says, from normal men into perfect men. We will see this reality take place. We will see them enter into the presence of God. And no more will they walk around on earth just like everyone else. Suddenly, strange things will begin to happen at their hands. Strange in the sense that it doesn't just happen to normal human beings. Suddenly, people will be raised from the dead at their hands. Tongues will be spoken. The sick will be healed. Because no longer are they simply human beings, but they become partakers in the divine nature. Okay? Verse 10. Go ahead, Jennifer. 10 through 12. The Father forgave him into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come, into, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Okay, hold on. What's a Sabbath day's journey? What's that? How do you know that? Because of the tells him so. The footnotes are very helpful. Sometimes they're not so helpful, but sometimes they are. It's two-thirds of a mile. Two-thirds of a mile. It's based on, if I have a note in front of me, Exodus, we won't go there if you're interested. Exodus, is anybody interested? Okay, Exodus 16.29 and Numbers 35.5. If you read those two passages, don't read them right now. 
and you read those two passages, it talks about what a man must and must not do on the Sabbath day. And this, the Jewish interpretation of that, as they interpreted the law for the practical use of the faithful, they said, you can't go more than 2,000 cubits, which is basically two-thirds to three-quarters of a mile, somewhere in there. Okay? Um, and then we find the upper room. What's the upper room in verse 13? Yeah, the same place they had been on the Last Supper. Okay, So this whole time, imagine this whole time, they've been dwelling in Jerusalem Okay, and keeping that upper room. Okay, Our Lord's been appearing to them and so forth. They've been staying in that upper room. Okay, All the things that took place there, their memory... Okay, constantly reflecting back now for those last 40 days, 41 days, it goes on towards Pentecost. Reflecting upon the times that the Lord appeared to them, when the doors were locked. You imagine the conversations they would have been having. Now our Lord has ascended into heaven and they're left. And what are they left with? Just themselves. Okay, and so they gather in prayer. Verse 12, Jennifer, keep going. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. It's not Judas Iscariot, right? It's a different Judas. It's Judas. Okay, go ahead. All these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Okay, hold on. I needed to say one thing about these women. Who were the women? In verse 14, all these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Who were these women? Mary Magdalene. Yeah, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Okay, who most likely was a close relative to Our Lady. Probably Martha. Okay, maybe Martha. There were women in the in the gospel story that we find that travel with the apostles and attend to their needs. Okay, you can see that again. We don't have time to look there in Luke chapter eight, verse two and three. Okay, these women that went along with them, probably providing for some of the basic cooking and things like that, making sure the apostles of our Lord had what they needed to have in order to accomplish their ministry. And so they they are kind of shut up here in the upper room with the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, um, and the twelve apostles. Okay, keep reading through verse twenty. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who was guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Echeladama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it, and his office let another take. Okay. There's something that we need to, to learn from this instant, which is going to become more apparent as we read through the text. Notice the way the church interprets the scriptures. In, the, in Acts of the Apostles, 
It's a constant effort for the apostles to make sense out of the Old Testament, interpreting it in light of Christ. Okay? It is extremely important to understand the way the early Christians understood the church's role in the interpretation of Scripture. Notice, Peter stands up and proclaims the proper interpretation of two psalms of the Old Testament that he tacks together here. Okay? If you go back and read those psalms, it's not all that clear. Okay? It doesn't say it's talking about Jesus. It doesn't say anything of that sort. In fact, you probably read right through the text and never even flinch. But the early Christians understood that the whole of the Old Testament is to be interpreted in light of Christ, Christocentric. And therefore, they take all sorts of references, little sentences, almost out of context, it seems, and uses them to understand the work of our Lord. Okay? Jesus did the same thing. Yes, he did. He and, did. And Peter was with them on the road to Emmaus, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, Peter, no. No, well, okay. <clears throat> no. My point is, and, and, and our Lord has the same, is the same situation, is that the church is placed in a certain position to interpret the Word of God. If Jesus says that the Word of God says something, well, He has an authority to do that. Why? It's His Word. He spoke it. And I think He knows what He spoke. Similarly, the church is put in this unique position in Acts of the Apostles to be the interpreter of Scripture. Okay, it's very clear here, and it's going to be very clear as we walk our way through. So yes. it is significant then, I guess, that Peter is in the this, he's it. It is, it is significant. We're going to find, for the first uh, eight chapters or so of Acts, Peter is constantly the one that gets up and speaks for the Apostles. We'll take a look further at that. But even before we look at that issue, to look at this issue of the role of the church in interpreting Scripture. Why am I saying this right now? First of all, it's going to be constant throughout Acts. But also, notice we just read through a text which is a, could be difficult. Go back up to verse, um, verse 14. All of these, with one accord, devoted themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Why is that a difficult text? How could it be misinterpreted? Jesus had other brothers, and therefore Mary was not ever virgin, as the church teaches. Okay? They say, well, how do I know that the church isn't wrong? And I would come back to you and say, the church is the one that interprets Scripture. We do not put the church to the test of her interpretation, for she has a unique role and a unique position. We'll talk about that more, why that is, but a unique position to interpret the scriptures for us. Now, do we make a defense? Do we try to understand the scriptures so that they do make sense and they don't contradict themselves? Absolutely. It is necessary to understand them properly. But first and foremost, we don't put the church to the test. Instead, we put the scriptures to the test to understand, to have them be understood properly. Or I should say, we put ourselves to the test to understand the text properly as the church sees it. Just as when Christ interprets the text for us, we don't put him to the test. We put the text itself to the test. 
Does that make sense? Yes, Jennifer. But is it realistic when you're talking to people who don't accept the church's authority? No, it's not. Okay. okay. Now, now, what do we mean the brethren of the Lord? A principle I've taught you guys about a hundred times. Is it a text? Finish the sentence for me. A text without a context is no text at all. A text without a context is no text at all. Thank you, Jennifer. Oh. <laughs> Verse 12, or verse uh, 14. All of these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with, with, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. What are we going to do? Keep reading. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren. The company of persons was about 120. Are these the brethren, the children of Mary? <laughs> she would have been quite fruitful, I think. <laughs> So clearly not. Okay? Now, there's other texts in the New Testament which you say, well, they're not as clear. There's explanations also to those. It's yesterday's gospel. Yeah. Oh, really? Anyone who believes, anyone who believes my word is my mother and my brother. Exactly. Okay, fine. Exactly. I'll just give you a quick apologetic background. We don't have time to spend too much time on it because we've got to move on to Pentecost. Here it is. In Hebrew, there is the word for brother is ah, ah, I don't know, ah, something like that. Okay, you can imagine uh, Lebanese in my parents, ah, okay? And it doesn't just mean brother, it's not used just for brother, but also it has a wider meaning. There's no proper word for nephew, cousin, all sorts of other close relations. And so if you go back to the Hebrew Old Testament, you'll see that this word is used for people that are not brothers of the person they're talking about. A prime example of that is Lot. You remember Abraham and Lot? Do we need to go back to the Old Testament text? No. Okay, you can go back to it on your own. Write it down. It's Genesis chapter 13, I believe. Hold on. Genesis, uh, Genesis 11, 26 through 28. And chapter 14, verse 14. In chapter 14, Lot is said to be Abraham's brother. In your text, it might say kinsman. Okay? But that's not the original text in the Hebrew. Repeat what the references? Yeah. Chapter 11 and chapter 14. Chapter 11 and 14. Okay? It identifies Lot as Abraham's brother. But in fact, Lot is, from chapter 11, what relation to Abraham? Do you remember? Yeah. A nephew. <laughs> exactly. And there's all sorts of other texts in the Old Testament. If you want to come up afterwards, I'm happy to list them off for you. Okay? Where the same thing takes place. Can I say something? Yes. Uh, in the past five years, I taught in China. And even today, the Chinese refer to their cousins as brothers. Yeah. So I used to get confused with my brother said this. Then when I would ask more questions, it's a cousin. Yeah. I mean, look, we do it like in the South. Right? Especially, but I do it all the time because I have terrible people at time remembering people's names. So I call everybody brother and sister. Okay? Uh, or Jack. I used to call people. I had a Christian and I walked by and I'd seen 200 people and, hey, Jack, what's up? <laughs> so then everybody started calling me Jack. So. But, um, yeah, it's a common use, right? It's a general term of endearment almost. Father Grips over says it all the time. Yeah. Brothers and sisters. Right. Exactly. And in fact, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Well, we also pray to our Father that makes us all brothers. Exactly, exactly. When this word is translated into Greek in the Old Testament, the word is for brother, 
Adelphos. You can spell it whatever you want. Adelphos. Okay? And again, when it is applied to these situations in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is translated into Greek, again, Adelphos is used. Even though in Greek, guess what? There is a word for it. There is a word for cousin. Okay, but the translators are using Greek as their second language, and so they have a Hebrew mind for concepts. Okay, and so even though they have a word at their disposal, they don't use it. This same practice comes into the New Testament, and we see it right here, we see it in other places in the Gospels. Okay, so I say that because. It is important to understand the role of the church in interpreting scriptures. We have plenty of time over the next couple of weeks to talk about. It's extremely important because otherwise we get to that verse, we stop at verse 14 and say, uh-oh, the church must be wrong. And I cannot, how, how many people, how many people, right, have lost the faith because of one stupid verse that they misinterpreted? I should say a stupid verse, but one verse that they stupidly interpreted. Okay? Out of context and without the guidance of the church. And therefore they misunderstood the text. No, because I'm not saying there's not an explanation. There is. But it's secondary. First, we understand that the church is interpreting the scriptures for our understanding. As we see right there, Peter does. Taking the Psalms. It is his right and his role in the church to do that. And he does it properly. Okay? Any questions? Good. Okay. Let's keep reading um, verse... Um, go, uh, let's start verse 15 again, Jennifer. So I need my... Okay. Go ahead. Is, I think we stop anywhere. What's that? Is, in those days, Peter stood up among the brethren, the company of persons... No, just keep reading until I figure out where I'm at my notes. Go ahead. It said, Brethren, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted to share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field as the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it, and his office let another take. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until one day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who knows the heart of all men, show which one of these two have, thou hast chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas Okay, hold on. Just to point out that reference that, um, that Peter makes, his office let another take. The word office there is episcopate in Greek. What's that sound like? Yeah, the episcopal office. It's the office of the bishop, okay? Epi is is over or above, and what is scope? Yeah, it's scope, it's the site, okay? He's the overseer of the of the church. So you see, even back right here, I mean, we're talking a couple of days after our Lord's ascension, 
and they understand their position in the church as that of having an office overseeing the church and the people of God. Okay? Go ahead, Jennifer. Go back a few yes. verses, you know, give me a little context there. Just a card. <laughs> so I can get the names wrong again. And they put forward two. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Eustace, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who knows the heart of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside, to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and they lot fell on Matthias, and he was enrolled with the eleven apostles. Okay. I'll read you a little comment in the Navarre commentary, which is, is a very nice little reference here about the lots being cast. This method of divining God's will is to be found quite a number of times in the Old Testament. Its use was restricted to Levites to prevent it denigrating into a superstitious practice. In casting lots, the Jews used dice, sticks, pieces of paper, etc., each bearing the name of a candidate for an office or of people suspected of having committed some crime. Lots were cast as often as necessary to fill the number of places to be filled, to be filled, or the suspected number of criminals, and so on. Notice, who is it reserved to? Levites. The Levites. And here we see the apostles making use of something proper to the Levitical priesthood. Okay, very interesting. They're either breaking the law, or they understand their own identity in a way that has not fully been revealed in the text yet. Okay? They're not breaking the law. I can guarantee you that. They were, they were absolutely adamant that they never break the law. In Acts of the Apostles. Okay? So in some way we can see that possibly their position here in Acts is taking on that of the role of a priest. Even in their casting of lots. Okay. Jennifer, you're just going to read the rest of the time for us. You don't mind. Verse 1 through 4. Are you dying? <laughs> Carrie can read. Carrie, go ahead. Verse 1 through 4. <laughs> On the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Okay, hold on, hold on. We got you up. Pentecost. What is it? What is it? First of all, the word itself represents what? 50 days. Okay, 50 days from what? Passover. From Passover. Pentecost was a Jewish feast. Some of you may not know that. It was not something the Christians made up. Okay, it was not something the first Pentecost was on Pentecost Sunday, right? Not at all. Pentecost was a feast of the Jews. There were three great feasts in the Old Testament. What were they? First, what? Passover. Then Pentecost. Then? Ascension. Yeah, booths. Okay, booths or tabernacles. When do we see tabernacles in the New Testament? Elijah. The transfiguration. Remember, Peter says, Lord, should we can we build three booths now for each for each of you? Okay? We can go into that some other time. Um, so these three Old Testament feasts, all representing certain times of the harvest year. Okay, I'm sorry, I don't need this up here. You guys can get a word for it. It's 
Twitter says to me, I don't think I would get into that with them so much. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Passover. How did they feel that people? Booths. Was it? Yes. Yes. Booths. Okay. The feast of booths. Pentecost referred to what? Feast of uh, what part of the harvest? First fruits. Not first fruits. What's that? Yeah, the spring. It was the beginning. Is the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, and Pentecost? What do you think? It marked its conclusion. 50 days later. Okay. And booths? Booths is what? The harvest of what? When, when does it take place? Do you know what month in the Jewish calendar? Yeah, it's the seventh month, right, after Passover. Can you imagine what month that is? Yeah, somewhere like September or something like that. So what's what's coming? Yeah, what's ready to be harvested? Gourds. Yeah, what else? <laughs> All the fruit. It's the fruit harvest. <laughs> what did you say? Okay, we're looking at Pentecost. There was a further um, identification of Pentecost, just as there was a further identification of Passover. It wasn't only the beginning of the harvest, but what? What else? It commemorated what event in the history of the Jews? Passover. Yeah, the, okay, thank you. The Passover in Egypt. Okay? Similarly, Pentecost referred to what? Do you know? The giving of the law in Sinai. This is very important, guys, as we're looking, as we're looking at Pentecost and Acts of the Apostles, I promise. Go back to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt. Notice, the third new moon. How long is that? How, what's a cycle of one moon? How many days? 30. Yeah, 30 days. See all this crazy stuff I had on the board? It's because I told my brother, I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's the third new moon. That's 90 days after they left. I said, but they're saying that 50 days later is when they received the law. And so you get this connection with, Pente with Pentecost and the giving of the law. And so we had to pull out. We started thinking about all the numbers and this many days and that many days. Anyways, it works out, I promise. And we don't have to get into it. Okay? If you want to get into it later, we can talk about it. Why it all adds up to actually 50 days. But it does. But notice what else happens. In verse... Two, and when they set out from Rephidim came and came into the wilderness of Sinai, they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain of God at Mount Sinai. Where are the Jews? Or where I'm sorry, where are the apostles right now on Pentecost? 
and Acts. In the upper room on Mount Jerusalem. They're on a mountain. Okay? What else? Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Lo, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. What has just appeared? But a cloud which our Lord ascended on. Okay? Um, verse 18. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, like the Holy Spirit coming down in flames. So you can imagine the Jews reflecting upon this feast, right? And all of these images coming up, and now all of a sudden that reality is relived in the life of the apostles. Does that make sense, Jennifer? You're squinting at me like it doesn't. Are you with me? Yeah, okay. Actually, no, I was just going to make a comment about the. Go ahead. The verse 9 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Lord, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, and after that, the, the people may hear when I speak to you. Mm-hmm. Isn't that sort of like the speaking of tongues that they all understand? Yeah, in fact, there's the giving of, yeah, there's the giving of his word, okay, in both cases. And so, and we're going to talk about that. The giving of the old law, and now the giving of the new law. Because all this Old Testament references going into what's going on in Acts of the Apostles. For the feast. Yes. Back here, when you said uh, about casting lots, you said they were not, they would not break the old law. So at this point, they're still following the old law. Ah, that's a, that's a great question, especially in Acts of the Apostles. There's two ways to look at this. Has the old law been washed away and a whole new law brought in? It seems in certain passages of the scriptures, it seems to be the, the idea. However. Especially for the apostles in these earliest days living among the Jews, they absolutely did not see what they were doing as getting rid of the old law, but fulfilling it. As our Lord says, not one, what, yoda or tittle of the law, not even the, the little markings on the words of the law will be done away with. All will be fulfilled, rather, brought to their fulfillment and made what they were supposed to be in the beginning, as we're going to see with the Feast of Pentecost. All of what it was supposed to be in the Old Testament is made, is, is, is brought forth in the New Testament. What it was supposed to be is made reality. Okay? It was a mere shadow in the Old Testament, and now it is fulfilled on Pentecost Day in Acts. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Listen very closely. This is kind of a tough quote, and uh, but just listen. According to unanimous Jewish tradition, which was universally received at the time of Christ, the day of Pentecost was the anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which the Feast of Weeks, this is Pentecost, same thing, Feast of Weeks and Pentecost are the same thing, which the Feast of Weeks was intended to commemorate. Thus, as the dedication of the harvest, commencing with the presentation of the first Omer on Passover, the beginning of the harvest on Passover, as the dedication of the harvest, commencing with the presentation of the first Omer on Passover, was completed in the thank offering at Pentecost. What was begun at Passover was concluded at Pentecost. So that the memorial of Israel's deliverance in, in Egypt appropriately terminated in that of the giving of the law. Okay, so what the cycle that begins here in the natural cycle and concludes with the conclusion of the harvest also parallels the beginning of Israel's freedom in Egypt, the Passover, and concludes with the giving of the law on Pentecost at Mount Sinai. Okay? 
just as the making of the highest, just as making the highest application of it, the Passover sacrifice of the Lord Jesus may be said to have been completed in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. What was begun in our Lord in Passover is concluded now with not only the giving of the old law, but the giving of the new law with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just as the old law was written on stone in the Old Testament, now the new law is written on the hearts of the believers at Pentecost. Okay, you see the parallels? Okay. for the Jews, all faithful Jewish males had to appear before the Lord. Okay, you can see that in Exodus. We don't have time to turn there. You can see that in Exodus um, 23, if you want, verse 14. And so, and three. yeah, three times they had to appear before the Lord. What were those three times during the year? Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Why is that important? Because don't think of Pentecost and don't think of Passover as our Lord's making his way into, into Jerusalem as, well, isn't that nice? He rides in on a, on a mule and, and people wave little palms and, you know, maybe 200 people show up for Mass. Okay? Not the case at all. Josephus, who is an a, uh, early Jewish historian, reflecting on Pentecost during the time of the Maccabees, he says... He says, but while there was daily skirmishes, he's talking about the fighting between the, the Maccabees were defending the temple. But while there were daily skirmishes, the enemy waited for the coming of the multitude out of the country to Pentecost, a feast of our so-called. And when that day was come, many tens of thousands of people were gathered together about the temple. Tens of thousands of people. So you can imagine, Jerusalem is not, how many people have been to Jerusalem here? How big is that city, is it? It's quite small. Tens of thousands. The place, just like at Passover, would have been mayhem. And the amount of sacrifices taking place in the... There's one account I read about Passover. The sacrifice of the Lamb. Literally, creeks of blood would have been flowing down the hills of Jerusalem because of the number of sacrifices taking place. Because of the number of faithful. So you can imagine on Pentecost, tens of thousands of people there... I was going to say, wasn't it a requirement of, what did you say, being um, a Jewish male, at least point on a female, that you had to go to the, the temple? There was only one Absolutely. temple. Absolutely. Yeah, you had to go to the temple and you had to offer your sacrifice. At least one time in your life? Is that what it No, three times a year. The Muslims have to go to Mecca once, once in their lifetime. Okay? I'm going to read you a quote from Edersheim, who's a, um, who's a Jewish Christian. Okay, he's a great, a great scholar. It's, it's a bit long, so just bear with it. It's quite beautiful. So I'm going to, I wouldn't read it to you if it wasn't worth it. On the day before Pentecost, the pilgrim bands entered the holy city. You can imagine with him as he describes. Which just then lay in the full glory of early summer. Most of the harvest all over the country had already been reaped. And a period of rest and enjoyment seemed before them. As the stars shone out in the deep blue sky with the brilliance peculiar to the eastern clime, the blast of the priest's trumpets announcing the commencement of the feast sounded from the temple mount through the, through the delicious stillness of summer night. Already in the first watch, the great altar was cleansed, and immediately after midnight, the temple gates were thrown open. 
For before the morning sacrifice, all burnt and peace offerings, which the people proposed to bring at the feast, had to be examined by the officiating priesthood. Great as their number was, it must have been, been a busy time until the announcement that the morning glow extended to Hebron put an end to all such preparations by giving a signal for the regular morning sacrifice. After the festive offerings prescribed in numbers were brought, first a sin offering with proper imposition of hands, confession of sin and sprinkling of blood, and similarly the burnt offerings with their meat offerings, the Levites were now ch chanting the Hillel, the Thanksgiving to the accompanying music of a single flute, which began and ended the song, so as to give it a sort of soft sweetness. The round ringing treble of selected voices from the children of the Levites, who stood below their fathers, gave richness and melody to the hymn, while the people either repeated or responded, as on the evening of the Passover sacrifice. Okay? As, as the morning, you can imagine that morning taking place. Okay, and the hymn's being sung and the sacrifice is being offered. And it's at this moment that the Holy Spirit descends. All right, Carrie, go ahead and read us chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Okay. Second Vatican Council says, Without doubt, the Holy Spirit was at work in the world before Christ was glorified. On the day of Pentecost, however, he came down to the disciples that he might remain with them forever. On that day, the church was openly displayed to the crowds, and the spread of the gospel among the nations through preaching was begun. Finally, on that day, was foreshadowed the union of all peoples in the Catholicity of the faith by means of the Church of the New Alliance, a church which speaks every language, understands and embraces all tongues in charity, and thus overcome, overcomes the dispersion of Babel. Okay, why do they make the reference here to Babel? That's where it comes yeah, remember all the languages so people didn't understand each other. Now the reverse of that takes place. There's a beautiful uh, hymn that's sung in the Melkite church for the Feast of Pentecost. I'm sim sure similarly in the Roman liturgy, at least in the old Roman liturgy. It says, and remember I told you guys, lex orande, lex credendi. Listen to what the prayer says and you know what we believe. Okay? In the days of old, pride brought confusion of tongues to the builders of the Tower of Babel. But now the diversity of tongues enlightened the minds and gave knowledge for the glory of God. Then God punished the impious for their sin. Now Christ enlightened fishermen through the Spirit. Then the confusion of tongues was for the sake of punishment. Now there was variety so that voices could be joined in harmony for the salvation of our souls. 
Okay? Our Lord, just like He does throughout His whole life, He turns what was our sin and our evil into our glory. He enters into death and makes it our source of life. And so here, He takes what took place in the Tower of Babel and makes it for the glory of God. So that voices could be joined in harmony for the salvation of souls. Okay? It's interesting. Well, did, did we read verse? What did we read to there? Verse eleven. Read verse eleven and eleven through thirteen. Chapter two. Chapter two. Yeah. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, "What does this mean?" But others, mocking, said, "They are filled with new wine." Okay. Why do you think there's the, the distinction between those that? in wonder about what was taking place and those that mocked them. What was the difference? Why does everybody just stood them at the end of the group? What's that? Some kind of hint were revealed to them. Uh, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, some, okay, that's, yeah. All right, what else? <laughs> well, you didn't answer my question. You said, well, the gift. All right. But look, the gift of the Holy Spirit hasn't been given to these people yet. It's been given to the apostles, the 120, right? But it's now going out to them, and some are understanding them, and some are not. Well, I mean, why did some of them think they're drunk? What would it sound like if a guy's drunk? It'd just be nonsense, right? Slurring his words and nonsense. But the other people understood what they were saying and were in wonder about it. What do you think the difference is between the people? Open to the Spirit or not? Yeah, those, would you say maybe those? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, the old man said, I don't know. But I'm, I was meditating on this and thinking, it must have been those who were faithful Jews awaiting the Messiah who really had the intent of the heart, the true intention of the heart, versus those that did not have the faith. It is the same today. For those that have been given the gift of faith, they see the things of God clearly in the church. But to those outside the church, what we do inside a church on Sunday is ridiculous. <laughs> Here's a guy dressed up in a funny costume, holding up a piece of bread, and everybody's kneeling down beating their breast. It looks ridiculous. But to a Catholic, that, that ridiculous never even occurs to us. Because we've been given the eyes of faith. And similarly here, those who prepare themselves are given that gift of understanding. Okay? St. John Chrysostom says regarding Peter, standing up again in the midst of the apostles, says, Listen to him preach and argue so boldly, who shortly before had trembled at the word of a servant girl. This boldness is a significant proof of the resurrection of the Master. Peter preaches to men who mock and laugh at his enthusiasm. Calumny does not deter the apostles. Sarcasm does not undermine their courage. For the coming of the, of the Holy Spirit has made new men of them, men who can put up with every kind of human test. When this Holy Spirit enters into hearts, he does so to elevate their affections and to change earthly souls, souls of claim to chosen souls, people of real courage. Look at the harmony that exists among the apostles. See how they allow Peter to speak on behalf of them all. Peter raises his voice and speaks to the people with full assurance. That is the kind of courage a man has when he is the instrument of the Holy Spirit. Just as a burning coal does not lose its heat when it falls in a haystack, but instead is enabled to release its heat. So Peter now, that he is in contact with the life-giving spirit, spreads his inner fire to those around him. 
Okay? As you read through the, the story of Pentecost, we're going to have to come back to deal with this next week. Hold on, Norm, I'm almost done. He quotes Joel and he quotes King David. And he quotes King David. And he makes reference to two sections of the Old Testament. Do me a favor. Go back and read those sections. They're footnoted in your Bible. Okay, go back and read those sections. Read a little bit of the context of those sections, especially in Joel. Because it's very telling. Joel is extremely short. You're going to read it in three minutes. You can see it in your footnotes. You had your Bible up, you would see. Alright? Joel, don't worry, Joel's in there. Joey, J-O-E-L. Stay with me because I have one concluding quote that i got to read you. It'll kind of give us an impetus for next week. Impetus is the right word? It's from St. Basil. And I'll conclude with this and maybe one comment. At the end of Pentecost, you remember, 3,000 souls were brought to our Lord. Saint ba- and, and baptized. St. Basil says, In the same way as transparent bodies, when light shines on them, become resplendent and bright, souls elevated and enlightened by the Holy Spirit become spiritual too and lead others to the light of grace. From the Holy Spirit comes knowledge of future events, understanding of mysteries and of hidden truths, an outpouring of gifts, heavenly citizenship, conversation with angels. From Him comes never-ending joy, perseverance in good, likeness to God, and the most sublime imaginable, becoming God. It is absolutely essential as we make our way through Acts that we see in the transformation of the apostles and our own transformation on the day that we were baptized and confirmed, the remaking of man in the image and likeness of God. We become partakers in the divine nature. And as I said earlier, suddenly strange things begin to happen happen at the hands of Christians. Because it is no longer Joe or Steve or Sabatino standing there. But it's Jesus Christ enfleshed in us, incarnated in us, who now reaches out to the world. Okay? Beth, sorry, that's not you. That's me. Sorry, Beth used to, by the way, Beth used to do Bible studies with me at Christendom. I think you attended my first Bible study ever. Yeah, we did a whole lot. My first Bible study Christmas was on the Feast of Tabernacles. You're right. All right, let's uh, conclude. For please stay around for a little wine and cheese. And, and and if you don't know each other, time to meet and tell your friends to come. All right, let's conclude in prayer. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Saint Luke. Pray for us. You know, the Apostles of Philius, but it is hard.